A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. Jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. Here's the 1-2 pitch to Palmero. A ground ball past Jenks up the middle of the infield. Uribe has it. He throws. Out! Out! A White Sox winner and a world championship! The White Sox have won the World Series and they're mobbing each other on the field! Ah, yes. Welcome to another edition of MLB Morning Coffee. A happy Tuesday to you here from the Ocean Avenue studios in San Francisco, California. My name is Greg Moraz, your host as per usual. If you have not done so already, make sure you write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. If you did not listen to yesterday's Java Jive about starters that completed outs in the 10th inning, go back and listen to that. I think you'll actually enjoy it. So today is going to be the start of my What If series, and the What If series is mainly going to focus, at least for the first part of it, on teams in the same geographical region that won a World Series, and what it would be like if those two teams from that specific year ended up playing each other. So we're going to do this position by position, then rotation, then bullpen, and then managers. So I wanted to start off with something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's the great city of Chicago, Illinois. The reason I start with that is that my whole dad's side of the family are Chicago White Sox fans. My little sister, shout out to you, Sarah Mraz, if you are listening, is a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. I grew up more rooting for the White Sox because my dad had an influence on me as a White Sox fan. But I thought that this was a really fun exercise because when you look at the 2005 Chicago White Sox, who won the World Series that year, and the 2016 Chicago Cubs, there was no disputing that they were both the best teams in their leagues that year. The White Sox, I think it was like 25 straight games to start the season in which they actually held the lead at some point in the game, and the Cubs ended up winning 103 games that season and won the World Series in seven over the Cleveland Indians. The White Sox swept their World Series against the Houston Astros in 2005 and only lost one game the entire playoffs. So I thought it would be an interesting exercise to see who would have won between the 2005 Chicago White Sox and the 2016 Chicago Cubs if those two teams ended up playing each other in the World Series. Now the way we're going to do this is we're going to go position by position. And so we'll play a couple of highlights from each of those players throughout those respective seasons and see if we can make a determination. I think I have a pretty good idea on each of them, so we're going to be either favorite Cubs, favorite White Sox, or a toss-up. So let's start off first with the man behind the plate, the backstop. The ball hit deep in the left center field. Stretch! Stretch! Get up! It will... You can put it on the board! Yes! A home run by A.J. And the Sox win it 6-5! Yes! Here comes the 0-2. High drive into right, back at the wall, and it's gone! 
So we begin at the catcher position, which is going to face A.J. Pruszynski of the Chicago White Sox against, and this is difficult because the Cubs had a couple of different catchers that year, Miguel Montero, David Ross, and Wilson Contreras of the Chicago Cubs. Now, the two main catchers were Montero and Ross. Now, Ross was mainly John Lester's personal backup and the main backup for the Cubs, while Wilson Contreras got some action when Montero was hurt in the middle of the year. So let's start off with Miguel Montero. He was a really good defensive catcher, but struggled offensively. He hit 216 in 2016 with eight homers and 33 RBI. David Ross is what David Ross is. He hit 10 homers that season, including the go-ahead homer in Game 7 of the World Series, drove in 32 runs, he hit 229, but had a 338 on on-base percentage. His value was being able to command the clubhouse and to handle John Lester. Then there's Wilson Contreras, who stepped in as the Cubs' catcher of the future the next season after Miguel Montero called out Jake Arrieta for not being able to hold runners on, which I thought was a really interesting argument. Contreras had a really solid segment of a season when he was playing with the Cubs. He hit 282 with 12 homers and 35 runs driven in, had a 357 on base percentage, and was a very active defensive presence. Now let's go to the White Sox, and we're going to include one man in this. That's A.J. Pruszynski. He hit 257, hit 18 homers, drove in 56 runs, was a great defensive catcher, handled the pitchers really well, and if it was not for his heads-up play in Game 2 of the ALCS against the Angels, where Josh Paul dropped the ball on that third strike, Pruszynski got to first, there's a chance that the White Sox don't end up winning that game. I look at Pruszynski over the course of his career with the White Sox, and he had much better statistical years than he did in 2005. He had a much better year in 2006 where he hit 295 with 16 homers and 64 driven in. But again, this is the matchup of what it would have been in those specific years. And for this year, I have to give the edge to A.J. Pruszynski because he was there the whole year. He changed the culture of that clubhouse. He brought in that attitude that the White Sox desperately needed. Remember, he signed on a one-year tender after being jettisoned out of San Francisco after the 2004 season in what was a disastrous one-year stint with the Giants. Montero was a big part of the Cubs winning, but Montero is not who you think of when you remember Cubs catchers. You remember David Ross from that year, and in terms of the impact the entire season, David Ross did not nearly have the same impact that Montero or even Wilson Contreras did. So I have to go with the guy that was there for the long haul, A.J. Pruszynski. He wins the battle of the catchers of 05 and 2016. the first one in a long time for Anthony Rizzo. Here's Canerco on the pitch to PK. Swing it along with a left. It's going to go. It's a slam. Sox lead. 6-4. Light it up. Deciding who's the better first baseman between these two was probably the toughest of all, and I'm going to say it right off the top. This was a toss-up. Paul Canerco of the 2005 White Sox and Anthony Rizzo of the 2016 Cubs. Let's go with Rizzo's stats first. He hit 292 with a 385 on base percentage. He hit 32 home runs 
and drove in 109 runs that season. Rizzo was known as the leader of that Cubs clubhouse. Now let's look at Paul Canerco. Paulie hit 283 with a 375 on base percentage. He hit 40 homers and drove in 100 runs, and Canerco played 158 of the 162 games. Anthony Rizzo played 155 of the 162 games. I mean, you look at it. Rizzo had the higher batting average. Rizzo had more RBI. Canerco hit more homers, but he didn't have that many fewer RBI than Rizzo did. Both of these guys are critical to each of their teams winning their respective World Series. I don't think that the White Sox win the World Series without the performance that Paulie put up. Remember the grand slam that he hit in Game 2 of that World Series. And Anthony Rizzo was the rock in the middle of the Cubs lineup all season long. I say this is a toss-up because these were two of the best players on their team that year. I don't think that you can say that one was better than the other because both of them are remembered as guys that were critical to that team winning that respective title. Another three-run homer. The quick pitch. And Baez sends it deep to left. Pagan is there at the wall and it's in the basket. Second base is interesting because the Cubs had two different guys playing second base. Ben Zobrist and Javier Baez. For the White Sox, it was one guy, Tanahito Iguchi. Now, Ben Zobris played a lot of games in left field that season, so for the sake of this argument, we're going to make Zobrist as our left fielder. Now, for the Cubs, we'll make Baez the second baseman up against Tadahito Iguchi. Baez didn't have the type of year in 2016 that he had in 2018 when he almost won the NL MVP, but still a solid season to boot. He had 273 with 14 homers and 59 RBI in 142 games over the course of 421 at-bats. He struck out 108 times. His on-base was only a 314, which for a 273 average wasn't great. Let's look at Tadahito Iguchi, who was just a solid second baseman. 278 average, 342 on-base percentage, 15 homers, and 71 driven in over 135 games. This is tough because people regard Baez as the better player, but if you look at that season in the microcosm of what it was, Iguchi's numbers were better because he played more games at second base and he had a much better on-base percentage relative to his batting average. If you were to ask somebody who is the better player, the answer is obviously going to be Javier Baez. But if you're looking at who was the better player that season, I think the answer is Tadahito Iguchi. A high pop fly down the left field line, moving toward the stands in foul territory. Uribe is over there. He reaches. Did he catch it? Did he catch it? He caught it. He caught it and went into the stands and brought it back out. How about that? Oh, unbelievable. 2-0. Chicago. 
Addison Russell came into this game over his last eight hitting over 300. Two huge home runs in the NLCS out in Los Angeles. And now a crushing grand slam here in the third inning to open it up. So now we move on to the shortstops. Juan Uribe of the White Sox against Addison Russell of the Cubs. Russell was great in 2016. Although he hit only 238, he had a 321 on base percentage. He hit 21 homers and drove in 95 runs that season. Russell was an all star that year, the only time in his career that he made an all star team. Juan Uribe, meanwhile, in 146 games, hit 252 with a 301 on base percentage. He hit 16 homers and drove in 71 runs. Again, numbers very similar to Tadahito Iguchi, except in the batting average category. You've got to go with the defense, you've got to go with the RBI numbers, and you've got to go with the home run totals, and that was in favor of Addison Russell. But make no mistake about it. The White Sox don't win the World Series in 2005 without Juan Uribe. He was that critical glue guy. And if you talk to a lot of San Francisco Giants fans, they feel like they don't win the World Series in 2010 without Juan Uribe as well. So for me, when I look at Uribe, I look at him as a journeyman infielder, somebody that was never great defensively at shortstop, somewhat played there out of need for the White Sox, and did a serviceable job. But he was not nearly as good defensively as Addison Russell. He didn't have the same run production numbers as Addison Russell. And he didn't have the same differential in batting average to on-base percentage that Russell did. He had a 321 on base despite having just a 238 average. This was tough, but I think Russell takes the victory in the battle of the shortstops. The pitch by Escobar. Greedy hits a drive. Left field to the corner. This one is off the wall. Ozuna scores. It's a White Sox winner. And the ALCS is tied at a game apiece. Fans are going nuts all the way around this facility. High fly ball in the air to left. Cubs strike first. Tape measure shot by Chris Bryant. Third base was the easiest decision here, and it wasn't because of the fact that Joe Creedy was a substandard third baseman. It's just that you can't pick against the MVP from that season, and that's what Chris Bryant was in 2016. After winning the Rookie of the Year in 2015, Bryant in 2016 wins the NL MVP. He hits 292 with a 385 on base percentage. He hit 39 homers and drove in 102 runs, played in 155 games that season. Bryant had 199 strikeouts as a rookie, which led to the entire National League, but cut that down to 154 in 2016. He won the NL MVP. He was the Cubs' table setter for Anthony Rizzo and others in that lineup, and a 100-plus RBI guy. It's really hard to argue against that. Joe Creedy was a great defensive third baseman that never got his due defensively because he was always battling against the A's Eric Chavez for the Gold Glove Award at third base, and everybody held Chavez in higher regard as a defensive third baseman than Creedy. But Joe Creedy had his best season offensively in 2006 where he won his lone Silver Slugger Award. He hit a career-high 30 homers, drove in 94 runs, hit 283 with a 323 on base percentage. He made his only all-star team in 2008. 
Creedy in 05 played in 132 games. He did have some injury troubles that season. Hit 22 homers, drove in 62 runs, hit 252 with a 303 on base percentage. Creedy was invaluable for what he did for the White Sox that season, but you can't pick him over somebody that won the MVP in their respective league that year. So at third base, the award in this battle goes to Chris Bryant. American leaguers here in the East don't get a chance to see him, and Carl Everett has just put the crush on to Jose Mercedes. He just went out to Utah Street. Tremendous two-run home run off the bat of Carl Everett. So when I set this format up, I didn't realize that there would be one battle that was a complete mismatch, and that's the DH battle. Why? Because the National League does not have a DH. So I figured that I would pit one good Cub utility guy or somebody that played enough games against the White Sox DH from that year. So we're going to go with Jorge Soler of the Cubs against the White Sox DH, Carl Everett. Now, Soler only played in 86 games, but he had 12 homers, drove in 31 runs. You can take a couple other guys that had some contributions to that team. You can talk David Ross. You could talk Wilson Contreras. I probably would have put Kyle Schwarber here, but Schwarber barely played at all in the regular season. He got hurt in the first road series of the year in Arizona and was able to come back in the World Series. Carl Everett, meanwhile, for the White Sox, had one of his best years. He hit 251, but still hit 23 homers and drove in 87 runs that season. Carl Everett always gets overlooked because people think of Frank Thomas as the DH of the White Sox. Frank Thomas only played in 34 games that season and impressively hit 12 homers in those 34 games. But Carl Everett was the main DH that season and was somebody that made a contribution that not a whole lot of people appreciate when they look back on those 2005 Chicago White Sox. Carl Everett was very much looked at as an outsider. He was looked at as kind of a goon. And given that we're watching a lot of The Last Dance right now and looking back on the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls, I would say that Carl Everett is kind of the Dennis Rodman of the 2005 White Sox. But in any event, he helped him win, he was effective, and his numbers you could put up against anybody in this lineup, save per se Paul Konerko and Jermaine Dye. So in the battle of the DH versus Cubs utility people, I have to go with Carl Everett. The 2-1. A swing and a high fly ball. Deep right center field. This is way back in the gap. And it's a goner! A White Sox winner! A winner on a Pacific home run! And the White Sox go up two games to nothing in the 2005 World Series. Left field was another really tough battle. Scott Pitsednik came to the White Sox before the 2005 season and had a great year on the south side. He hit 290 with a 351 on base percentage. He only played in 129 games. He sometimes got subbed out as a platoon guy, but he stole 59 bases and was regarded as the best leadoff hitter in all of baseball that season. Pesednik also hit the walk-off homer in Game 2 of the 2005 World Series after not hitting a single homer the entire season. For the Cubs, it's Ben Zobris that gets the left field spot. 
In 2016, he made his third All-Star team. He hit 272 with a 386 on-base percentage. 18 homers, 76 RBI. He stole six bases that season. Now, this is a tough battle because these are two very different players. Zobrist was a utility guy that got forced into left field because of the injury to Kyle Schwarber. Pesetic, meanwhile, was the left fielder from the get-go and was the leadoff man every time he was in the lineup. I was torn on this because I felt like both of these guys had a case to be the best left fielder between the two, but Scott Pesednik made a mark on the 2005 Chicago White Sox that not a whole lot of other people could have said for the teams that won their World Series. When people think about the impact guys that won for the Cubs, they don't think of Ben Zobrist. For the White Sox, they do think of Scotty Pods, and that's why I've got Pesednik as the left fielder of choice in this battle of the 05 White Sox and the 2016 Cubs. That's in the air to center. Back at the wall, it is gone! What a start! Dexter Fowler, hello in game seven. One nothing Chicago. Look at first, the pitch from Wells. Swinging a line drive down the left field line, dropping quick to the corner. This ball bounces fair. Down the line it goes, rolls around the corner. Everett's going to come home. Into second base is Roan with a run scoring double. Sox are on the board. They trail 4-1 here in the fifth. That ball was fair by about two inches. I think having a great leadoff guy is the difference between a World Series champion and just a really good team. And that's why in the center field category, I'm giving the edge to Dexter Fowler of the Chicago Cubs. Many Cubs fans say today that they still haven't been able to properly replace Dexter Fowler. He was their leadoff hitter. He was the linchpin that started that lineup. He was somebody that played a great center field. He got on base at a good clip. He hit 276, but had a 393 on base percentage. Fowler hit 13 homers and drove in 48 runs that season in 125 games. He played a great center field, and I just look at that on-base number. Like, he had an on-base of almost 400. That's what a leadoff hitter is supposed to do. Aaron Rowland was a really good defensive center fielder for the White Sox in 2005. He hit 270 with a 329 on-base percentage, 13 homers, and 69 runs driven in. Rowland would be traded the next season to the Phillies in exchange for Jim Tomey. He didn't win the gold glove that year. He did win a gold glove in 2007 in Philadelphia. But when I look at the impact on that team, Rowland's impact was big defensively. But we talk about leadoff men. What Scott Pesednik was for the White Sox in 05 is what Dexter Fowler was to the Cubs in 2016. And that's why I have him as the winner in the center field category over the beloved grinder, Aaron Rowand. Here is Hayward. Made the catch. And even Bauer has to smile at that. He climbed the wall and had to reach behind him. He was prepared to go in the stands. You see him reach up and come back and get it. No score in the eighth with two down. The 1-1 pitch. Jermaine drives it up the middle. A base hit to center. Harris scores. The White Sox have a 1-0 lead in the eighth. So for me, right field is a no-brainer, but I do want to give the other side of it first. Jason Hayward, the Cubs right fielder in 2016, was a gold glover that season. The third consecutive gold glove that he won in right field in his first year with the Cubs. 
and while he had a 306 on base percentage, he only hit 230. He hit seven homers, which was the fewest of his career, and drove in 49 runs, which was the second fewest of his career. And Hayward played in 142 games. To contrast it with 2017, he played in 126 games, that's 16 less than the previous year, and he hit more homers, drove in more runs. He had 11 homers, drove in 59 runs that year, hit 259 with a 326 on base percentage. Defense matters, but Jermaine Dye of the White Sox in 2005 was a whole heck of a lot better. In 145 games, he hit 31 homers, drove in 86 runs, hit 274 with a 333 on base percentage, coming to the White Sox on a one year flyer after flaming out with the A's after three and a half seasons. Dye famously separated his shoulder in 2003, the last year the A's made the playoffs during his time in Oakland. Dye was a big impact on the White Sox lineup after they let Maglio Ordonez walk to Detroit. Dye in 2006 had an even better year, finishing fifth in the MVP, winning his only silver slugger, hitting 315 with 44 homers and 120 runs batted in. 31 bombs, 86 runs, a 274 average, and the go-ahead single in Game 4 of the World Series, the game that would eventually win you the World Series, to me, is enough to put Jermaine Dye over the top. I think Hayward's defense is better. There's no question about that. But in terms of total impact on that season, Jermaine Dye is known as one of the impact guys for the 05 White Sox. And when people think of the 2016 Cubs, to be quite honest, Jason Hayward's kind of an afterthought. The one-two pitch from Freddy Garcia to Kotschman. A hot shot to second to his left. Gucci gobbles it up and throws him out for a White Sox winner. Hendricks outstanding in the second half of the year. Fastball strike three call. Swing and a miss. Change up. So the rotation argument is really difficult because both of these teams had great rotations. Let's start with the 2016 Cubs. John Lester. 19-5, a 2-4-4 ERA in 202 innings. Jake Arrieta, who was not nearly as good as he was in 2015, still had a really good year, 18-8 with a 3-10 ERA in 197 innings. Kyle Hendricks almost won the Cy Young. He went 16-8 with a 2-13 ERA in 190 innings. John Lackey had a really solid year at the end of his career, 11-8 record and a 3.35 ERA in 188 innings. And Jason Hamill, a pretty darn good number five starter, 15-10 with a 3.83 ERA in 166 and two-thirds innings of work. Now let's look at the White Sox. Now the White Sox don't have the same type of ERA numbers as a whole in the rotation. Mark Burley, 16-8, 3.12 ERA. Freddie Garcia, 14-8, 3.87 ERA. Should note, that Burley pitched 236 innings that season, which was 34 more than John Lester, who was the only Cub to pitch over 200 innings. John Garland went 18-10 and 10 with a 3-5 ERA in 221 innings. Jose Contreras, 15-7 with a 3-6-1 ERA in 204 innings. And Orlando Hernandez, El Duque, he was not great. He was 9-9 with a 5-12 ERA in 128 innings of work. The White Sox ended up getting 10 starts that season from Brandon McCarthy, who went 3-2 in 67 innings of work. Now look, you look at the ERA numbers of the Cubs, and they're a whole heck of a lot better. But 
which team relied on their rotation more in the postseason. It was the White Sox. You had games two through five as complete games for that entire rotation. And Jose Contreras, I believe that he went like eight in the third innings in the game that they lost in game one of the ALCS against the Angels. The ERA numbers favor the Cubs, but the top four in the White Sox rotation all pitched at least 200 innings. Only one guy for the Cubs, Lester, pitched 200 innings. But I got to go with the ERA numbers, and that's why in a tight battle, I am taking the Cubs rotation of 2016. Bobby Jenks is ready. The kick and the one-strike pitch. A swing and the ball's hit past the mound to Iguchi. He has it and throws him out for a White Sox winner. And the White Sox are going to the American League Championship Series. One ball and two strikes on Perez. And the big left-hander fires. Ground ball to second base. Baez has it, throws to first. The inning is over. Chapman gets out of it. So the bullpen argument is really interesting because this is a different era and it's going to really blend into our manager's argument. The White Sox bullpen was lights out in 2005. Dustin Hermanson, people forget, everybody remembers Bobby Jenks, but people forget that Dustin Hermanson was the closer for most of the year. He had a 204 ERA and 34 saves. He had a back injury that pretty much ended his career. Luis Vizcaino... He had 65 appearances in a 3.70 ERA. Cliff Polite, 67 innings, a two-flat ERA and a 7-1 record. Neil Kotz, a 1.94 ERA in 60 and a third innings of work. Bobby Jenks in 32 appearances in the regular season, a 2.75 ERA, and he eventually became the closer for the playoffs. Can't forget Damaso Marte, the brilliant left-handed specialist who pitched just 45 and a third innings in 66 appearances. Now you go to the 2016 Cubs, who had some solid relievers. Travis Wood pitched 77 times and had 61 innings of work. Justin Grimm pitched 68 times, had only 52 innings of work. Pedro Strope pitched 54 times, had 47 innings of work. Hector Rondon started as the closer and then got replaced by Roldis Chapman, who had 16 saves in 28 appearances over his time with the Cubs after being picked up from the Yankees. He had just a 101 ERA. Carl Edwards Jr. also had 36 innings in 36 appearances with a 3.75 ERA. Look, this is a really difficult battle to decide because the White Sox had their reliable guys that they always went to. Meanwhile, the Cubs played the matchups. And I honestly have got to go with the White Sox here because when the White Sox bullpen was counted upon the most, they delivered. When the Cubs bullpen was needed to shut the door, They didn't necessarily do that when it mattered the most. The stats for the Cubs look good, but when you look at it situationally, the White Sox used fewer guys, but those fewer guys over the course of the whole season were, in my opinion, much more effective. My first thought is we did not suck. Four more, we could really have a party. What you see here, this is what you get. That's it. You like it, you like it. You don't beat it. So the manager argument is really interesting because you have two managers that had completely different philosophies. You had Ozzy Guillen that just wanted to let the guys play, and you had Joe Madden who wanted to tinker with every little thing that he could get his hands on. 
There's no question that Job Madden can change a culture and take a team from being good to being great. The intangibles that Joe Madden brings to a clubhouse are unparalleled with anybody else because he changes cultures and makes guys believe that they can win. He's the reason, in my opinion, why the Cubs were able to go from a middling team with some good prospects in 2014 to a wildcard team in 2015. The thing about Joe Madden is that he completely overmanages in games. I tell people to this day that the Cubs won the World Series in 2016 in spite of Joe Madden, not because of him. They should have lost Game 7. The fact that he let Aroldis Chapman pitch as much as he did during that postseason, and the fact that he gave up a home run to a punch-and-judy hitter like Rajay Davis, that's not on Chapman. That's on Madden for using Chapman too much. So, let's go to Ozzie Guillen, who was willing to let four starters in a row pitch complete games in the ALCS. Ozzie Guillen had faith in his guys. He had faith in everybody on his ball club to go out and do their job. But Ozzie Guillen, after 2008, never made the playoffs again. He got fired after 2011, and he ended up flaming out in one year with the Marlins, and he hasn't managed since. Meanwhile, Joe Madden is on his third managerial job. He has taken two different teams to World Series, and he might very well get the Angels to the World Series in the next couple of years. I am really torn on this because I feel like both managers have very big strengths but very glaring weaknesses, so I'm honestly going to put this as a toss-up. I think that the White Sox talent is what won them the 2005 World Series, and Ozzie Guillen enabled them to be as good as they were. I think the Cubs talent won them the 2016 World Series. I think they got as good as they did because of Joe Madden, but they won because of their own talent and not because of the decisions that Joe Madden made. And I think it was pretty clear in 2017, 2018, and especially in 2019, that Madden's bullpen decisions were eventually the end of his tenure in Chicago. So now we come down to our final question. Who would have won? And this is a really tough decision because both teams were the best in their league that season. The White Sox won 99 games, and they would have probably won over 100 if it was not for a cold September. The Cubs won 103 games. I am torn when talking about this, but I'm thinking about the White Sox playoff run and the fact that they swept the Red Sox. They won four of five from the Angels, and then they swept the World Series. The way that the White Sox played in 2005 in the playoffs was dominant. And the Cubs were not nearly as dominant. The Cubs had to go six games with the Dodgers. If it was not for a complete bullpen collapse by the San Francisco Giants in Game 4 of the NLDS, they probably would have gone to a Game 5 back in Chicago, and Johnny Cueto was as dominant as he had ever been in his career, and there's a chance he probably beats John Lester in Game 5 of the NLDS, and the Cubs never see the NLCS. And again, we talked about it. Rajay Davis's homer against Aroldis Chapman, if it wasn't for that rain delay going into extra innings, I think the Indians might have won. And just simply put, I think the White Sox were a better team in the postseason than the Cubs were in their postseason. So if I had to put the two teams 
given how they were playing at the time against each other, I think that I'm going with the 2005 Chicago White Sox. Do you disagree? Do you agree for different reasons? Let me know. Email me, greg.moraz at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at gregdmoraz. And if you like this show, we're going to have more of these like this. Subscribe to the show. I think you will thoroughly enjoy it. This has been the first of our What Ifs here on MLB Morning Coffee. Have a great rest of your day, whether you're a Cubs fan, White Sox fan, or anywhere in between. And as always, we will catch you in the AM.